have a word of prayer. Father, we pray now that as we open your word, we begin to study your word this evening. We pray that you'd give us guidance, pray that you'd give us understanding of your word, and inspire us through the preaching of your word to live a, a life that is in accordance with your word. I pray that you bless the preaching, Lord, give me strength, give me wisdom, guide my words this evening, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. We'll begin reading in verse number 51, but our text is really just 58, but we'll read from 51 to 58 just to get a little bit of a, a head start, a little back up there. Verse number 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must, be, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that, was, that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 is one of the more weighty chapters in the Bible. It is one of the definitive chapters on the resurrection of the believer. Paul begins the chapter, chapter by declaring and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each of those components of the gospel are essential to the gospel's effectiveness. The death of Christ without the resurrection of Christ is no gospel. The resurrection of Christ without the death of Christ is no gospel. And the resurrection would have been a, particularly a particular stumbling block to the Grecians because most Grecians, almost all Grecians, did not believe in a bodily resurrection. In fact, when Paul was preaching to the unbelievers in Athens, uh, as he was preaching, the, the Grecians there in Athens began to mock him once he got to the point of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The city to whom Paul is writing, the, uh, the city of Corinth, was uh, a Grecian city. And certainly there were people in the city uh, that, that would object to the resurrection of Christ. And even, I believe, there were believers in the church that were hesitating on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, and perhaps aided by a report from the brethren, anticipates this this hesitancy about the resurrection of Christ, and he writes this, this chapter. After Paul initially declares and proclaims the gospel of Christ, that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he moves to, to a defense of the physical resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ. Uh, he provides some compelling evidence of Christ's resurrection. He was, Christ was seen of Peter. He was seen of the twelve disciples. He was seen by 500 men at once. He was seen by the apostles. And he was even seen by the apostle Paul himself. And so Paul goes to present this undeniable and adequate evidence of Christ's bodily resurrection. But then Paul begins to move into the next section, the section that is carried throughout the remainder of the chapter, and that is the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what that Jesus rose from the dead? And as Paul begins to explain here in 1 Corinthians 15, 
we realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means everything. He says early in the chapter, and if Christ be not risen, then, was, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Again, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. And again, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Paul explains that the resurrection of Christ is the basis for our resurrection as, as believers. And we won't walk through the whole chapter, but we come to the conclusion of Paul's thoughts here in the text that we've read, beginning in verse 51. And to me, some of the most encouraging words in all the Scripture are found in verses 54 to 57. Now, right before this, in verses 51 to 53, we find the facts of, of the rapture explained by, by Paul, the rapture of the church. And the focus of these verses is that we will be changed, that we will receive an incorruptible and an immortal body. Incorruptible, that which cannot be marred by sin. Immortal, that which cannot be touched by death. And what a day that will be when we receive our incorruptible, immortal bodies. And so Paul grasps onto that truth, that wonderful truth that we will receive with absolute certainty, we will receive an immortal and incorruptible body. And he grasps onto that truth in, in verses 54 through verse 57. If you look at what he says in verse number 55, for example, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? I absolutely love these verses because this, this certainty of, of the hope of our resurrection, of our bodily resurrection, the, the receiving incorruptible and immortal uh, bodies. The Apostle Paul here looks at death. He looks at the grave and he mocks them. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? What boldness, what confidence in, 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 in his future resurrection. And you know, we know that man's greatest fear is death. For many, the uncertainty of death's timing paralyzes them. Uh, for others, they seek to find immortality outside of Christ through science, perhaps. Uh, for others, they choose to simply believe lies about the afterlife. And you take a man without God, excuse me, there are really only two options in relation to death. He can endure paralyzing fear, because of impending death and the uncertainty of death's timing. Or he can choose to believe uh, a lie about death, about, about the afterlife, about what comes, comes after death. And that is really the only way a man can get through life without being paralyzed by the fear of the certainty of death. Because once a man believes God's word about death and about what comes after, and that is that that, that, sep that it means separation from God Himself, and yet enduring the ever-present wrath of God forever, that is truly a paralyzing truth. And once a man comes to the realization of, of the truth of God's Word about death and about afterlife, it is a paralyzing realization. And so the only way humans can get through it is through misinformation, is to believe that there is no God is to believe that there is no afterlife, is to believe that good works will get them in good standing with God. Misinformation is the only way that man apart from Jesus Christ can deal with death. And the author of Hebrews backs up uh, my statements that fear is, the fear of death is the greatest enemy of man. He says this about the, the entirety of human race in, in, in chapter 2. He says, "...who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage." Bondage to sin, bondage to fear, 
bondage to the devil, all because of the fear of death, because of because the plight of the human of human race is is absolutely certain to, to end in death. And the bottom line is that for all those who are in Adam, there is no hope of immortality and incorruptibility. There is no hope of it. But on the flip side of that, for those of us that who that are in Christ Jesus, there is absolute certainty of incorruptibility and immortality. Now look at verse number 57. Who is it that gives us this victory? But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who provides the victory. And that's not a generalized statement that thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. That is a very specific statement as it relates to our resurrection, as our, uh, of our inheritance of an incorruptible and immortal, immortal body. body. See, in order for there to be a resurrection for those of us that are in Christ, someone had to deal with this looming, threatening enemy called death. And Christ took down death for us. As we see in verse number 55, O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death has been removed. And if you've ever had the unfortunate experience of being stung by a honeybee, or if you were just paying attention in science class, you know that when a honeybee stings a human being, it almost always results in the death of the honeybee. That is because the honeybee, when it stings a human being, the stinger gets stuck in the flesh, much, much like a porcupine needle gets stuck in the flesh. And if the, if the honeybee wants to depart from the flesh that it's just stung, it, it has to depart from its stinger. But the problem with that is, is once it departs from its stinger, it also departs from certain nerves, certain muscles, and part of its digest, digestive tract as well. And the damage that the bee does to itself when it pulls away from the human is, 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 is uh, it, it, kills, it kills the honeybee. It gets one sting on a human being, and that's it. And death, very similar to that honeybee, it stung Adam. When Adam sinned, death stung Adam. And because Adam sinned, sin was passed down unto all men. We received a sin nature through Adam. All the way, It's traced back all the way back to, to Adam. And because we received that sin nature, we also inherited the, the, the consequences of of that, of that sin nature and of our disobedience to, to the law, and that is death. And so death passed upon all men. Death stung Adam, and because it stung Adam, it stung all of us. And because it stung Adam, we all die. Because, at first, we are all in Adam. All those in Adam die. They die physically. But those who are in Christ Jesus do not die. Because while death stung Christ, the last Adam, it did not overcome Christ. Christ overcame death. Death gave Christ its best, its best shot. It stung Christ in, in the most effective possible way that it could, but it was ineffective. Because on that third day, Jesus Christ arose, and He rendered the power of death ineffective. And so all those that are in Christ Jesus, just as all those that are in Adam die, so all those that are in Christ Jesus do not die, are guaranteed a future resurrected body that is immortal and incorruptible. Amen. Death can buzz around. It can scare, but it can't sting. Now consider how Christ defeated death. First, 
Christ died for our sins. When Christ went to the cross, He went with the burden of our sins. He took that sin and and thereby took the penalty for our sins, which is death. And because He took our penalty, we do not have to experience death. But second, Christ died to sin. You see in verse number 56, the sting of death is sin. The reason death can sting is because of sin. Because sin is found in the subjects of of whom it stings. But with Christ, there was no sin. Because Christ was dead to sin. He walked 33 and a half years on this earth and He never sinned. He faced the temptations that you and I, He faced the the desire to deviate, uh, the, the temptation I should say, to deviate from the will of God. And yet He never deviated from the will of God. Sin was never found in Jesus Christ. And because of that, and only because of that, because He did not have to die for His own sins, He could die for our sins. He could take the penalty for our sins. But then third, Christ lived according to the law. Again, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The law defines sin. Now, don't misunderstand me. The law does not create sin. The law defines sin. The law is good, it is holy, it is just, as Paul says in Romans, in Romans number 7. Sin is, is, is simply deviation from God's will. At its core, that's, that's what all sin is. It's deviation from God's will. But you can only know what God's will is by the revealed will of God. And that is the law. That is what the law is. The law comes in, it sets, it sets those parameters around God's will, and then we as sinners, we disobey God's will. We deviate from God's will. And so we are, we, are, we are found to be sinners and we enter into that tightening grip of death. But because Christ lived in perfect accordance with the will of God, there was no sin found in Him. He did not deviate from the will of God one atom. He was in perfect accordance with, with God's will. And because of that, He was found sinless and He was able to bear our sin burden upon, upon the cross. And by the way... When you consider death, death is our enemy, there is a force behind death. And the author of Hebrews chapter 2 tells us who it is. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer tells us that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. When Christ went to the cross and when he rose from the grave that third day, he did not merely defeat death. He doomed the devil. When, When Christ was on that cross, the devil and his minions were doing everything in their power to keep him in the grave, but they failed. And really, let's be honest, it wasn't a fair fight. I mean, it's like a worm that gets squashed on a sidewalk. And that is the fate of the devil. And though the devil is the tempter today, and though the death may loom even today, we know that with absolute certainty that in the future we will receive an incorruptible and immortal body. And what a glorious day that will be. And you know what we say to that? We say exactly what Paul said in verse number 57. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we say to that. Thanks be to God for our wonderful future. Yet when Paul closes what is, in my opinion, a glorious, glorious chapter, he answers the next logical question. Yes, we as believers are the only type of person in the world that can look death in the face with knowledge and truth and say to die is gain. But what about our day-to-day living? How does this... Yes, it impacts our death, but how does it impact our living? 
And we see in verse number 58, he gives us that answer. And he begins by saying, therefore. In other words, as we consider the guarantee of our future resurrection, as we remember that we could be raised to the heavens at any moment, as we consider the future prospects of ever being in the presence of the Lord, here is how it is supposed to impact our day-to-day living. And that is to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That is how this truth, this wonderful truth, is to impact our day-to-day life. Now let me make a couple of general observations here, uh, and, and then I'll make some specific observations about, about these, we'll work, work word for word through these, these phrases. But let me start by saying that true doctrine is what gives us stability and strength in troubled times. Those that are driven with the wind and tossed about are always subject to some sort of false doctrine. It may not be damnable heresy. It may not even be detectable. But our actions are always guided by our beliefs and our philosophies. And so any, any, in, any action that deviates from, uh, from the Word of God is rooted in uh, unbelief in God's Word or an, a misunderstanding of God's words. That is always the case because belief always leads to action. Action always stems from a belief or a philosophy. The second observation that I'd like to make here is that true doctrine always leads to digital service and never to idle passivity. True doctrine always leads to diligent service, never true, uh, never idle passivity. And you can go and study this on your own. And I, I would encourage you to study the word doctrine in Scripture. But if you study doctrine, particularly in the New Testament, you'll find that doctrine is not simply meant to fill your head with knowledge. Doctrine always leads to diligence or motivation uh, to serve the Lord in a greater capacity. If your doctrine motivates you to lascivious living, if your doctrine motivates you to 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 passive evangelism, you can say unequivocally that it is false doctrine, that it is unbiblical. Because true biblical doctrine always leads to diligence and service and motivation to serve God in a greater capacity. And I could really get stuck there because, boy, there's some, some doctrines that we could start naming like Calvinism and, and this, 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 this grace movement. We could, we could go on and on uh, that, that leads, to, it leads to error in action. And it stems from, it stems, stems from misbelief, misunderstanding, or unbelief in God's Word. And when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection, it should be rather obvious how it impacts our living. Because the fear of death no longer looms over us because we are no longer threatened by death, because we have absolute certainty of a future resurrected body that is incorruptible and immortal, we should live differently than this world who has no hope of a future resurrection. And this call here is rooted in victory, in victory, in the knowledge of victory. And you see that in these verses that precede our text. O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. We are victorious. We have already won, won the war. And because of that, we can live in victory. And there have been occasions where I found myself watching uh, reruns uh, of uh, various sporting events. I haven't done this in a while, but there have been times where I've watched 
a replay of a game that I particularly enjoyed. And almost always, those replays are of intense games that come down to the wire. Uh, if it's basketball, it's like a buzzer beater shot. If it's if it's football, it's it's a it's a last minute comeback, something of that sort. And and on occasion, I'll go back and watch something something of that sort. And if I'm watching a game like that in the moment, and I'm rooting for a particular team, there's almost always anxiety uh, for me. And I know that's that's wrong. Uh, one, I probably shouldn't be watching sporting events in general, but. Uh, when I do, and I'm rooting for a particular team, if it's a close game, uh, you don't want to watch me watch the game. Uh, there's, there's a lot of anxiety there, especially when the event is live. But when the game is over, when I know the results of the game, if I go back and watch that game, there is no anxiety associated with that because I already know the outcome. I already know who won and who, who lost. And so it is. While it has not, not yet happened, it is though it already has. Because we know who wins this war. In fact, he's already won it. He won it when he got out of the grave on that third day. And so victory is assured. Victory is certain. And because of that, we should live our lives in accordance with that. Now let's consider the three commands that we find here in this verse. First, we find that, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be steadfast. And to be steadfast is to be fixed. It is to have a little bit of stubborn quality uh, to you. And I'm, I'm just looking at the clock back there, brother. It hadn't moved from 725 for a few minutes. If we could get that updated, that'd be great. Uh, I, was, I was thinking, I'm, I'm a little, I still got a little ways here. I looked back at it a little bit ago and I was thinking, well, I am, I am way ahead of schedule on this. And I keep looking at it and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to have to find some stuff to say here in a little bit. But to be steadfast is to be fixed. It is to have a little bit of a stubborn quality to you. And, and as one who is quite stubborn, I believe stubbornness, and Megan would, would certainly agree with me on this, stubbornness is a, is a virtue in some cases. It is good to be stubborn on occasions. To be steadfast, to be steadfast. You know, in the book of Ruth, you, you have Naomi. In the first chapter, you have Naomi that's going back to her homeland. This is after her husband and her sons have died. And she's accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi turns to her daughter-in-laws and she tries to persuade them to go back to their home country of Moab. And Orpah, upon this these persuasive tactics, as she turns around, she goes back to Moab. But here's what the Bible says about Ruth, uh, th th this encounter between Naomi and Ruth. It says, when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking to her. Ruth was determined. She was steadfast. She was stubborn in her unwillingness to go back to Mo Moab. And we are to be like Ruth in that instance. We are to be determined. We are to be stubborn. We are to be fixed in certain elements of the Christian life. We are to be steadfast in our message. Paul is writing to these fickle believers in Corinth who some, no doubt, have begun to, to have some hesitation about the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of the believers. And Paul is saying to these believers, do not back down from the truth of the gospel. Do not back down from the mocking, the scorning of the Corinthian world. Stand strong in the defense of the gospel. And today, the gospel, just like it did then, 
runs counter to our culture. And as Christians, we ought to be fixed. We, we ought to have a fixed mindset about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not going to back down to the truth of the gospel. We're not going to compromise one atom of the gospel. The gospel is not a negotiable. It is true, and we will preach and proclaim and defend uh, the entirety of the gospel. Years ago, Joel Osteen, uh, that wonderful man, well, at least he has a wonderful smile. Uh, Joel Osteen was on Larry King Live, and, and you may have seen the, uh, the interview that he had with Larry, Larry King. And if you have not seen it, I encourage you to go watch it, especially if you have a positive view of Joel Osteen. But Mr. Osteen was on, on Larry King Live, and he was pressed by, by Larry King about the, the, the exclusivity of the gospel. On several occasions, several instances, he was pressed on this matter. Is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? What about Jews? What about Muslims? What about those that do not believe in Jesus? And to his shame, Joel Osteen, who had an opportunity on national TV to proclaim and defend the gospel, was very wishy-washy on the, on the truth of the gospel. Uh, he, he would say things like, I don't know, uh, I, I think this or that, I'll let God be the judge of that. And that is absolutely to Joel Osteen's shame. And I encourage you to go watch it. Uh, and, and by the way, if your hero is Billy Graham, there were instances in Billy Graham's life where he, where he did the same thing, where he was wishy-washy on the gospel as well. But Joel Osteen in that instance would not clearly say in fact, he would not say that Jesus was the only way to heaven. He would not say that if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you will spend an eternity in hell. He, he was unwilling to say that. And what a shame that is. And heaven, heaven help us to be strong, to be fixed, to be firm in our defense of the gospel. But there is also to be steadfastness in ministry as well. Not just the message, but ministry as well. And when you consider this word steadfast, there is a sense of reliability a sense of consistency that comes with it. In Hebrews chapter 6, we find the author says this, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Steadfast. The promises of God are reliable. They are dependable because of the consistency between God's character and His Word. Our hope is fixed in that. It is fixed in the, in the fact and the belief that God will be true to his word, that his character is consistent with his word. The moment that God's character is no longer true to his word is the day that we have no hope. Because God's character and his, and his word is what our hope is fixed to. It is steadfast. His character and his word and his promises are sure and steadfast, and we can anchor our lives uh, to that. And the reason the world cannot have true steadfastness is because they are not anchored to the one who is truly steadfast. But because we are anchored to the one who is steadfast, we can demonstrate this quality, this virtue of steadfastness. But again, steadfast also carries the connotation of loyalty. In Psalm chapter 78, verse 37, speaking of the Israelites, the psalmist says, For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. The Israelites broke the covenant with God uh, that, that God made with them uh, on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 to 24. They were disloyal to Him. They cheated on God, to, so to speak. They broke the covenant that God had made with them. And so to be steadfast, we must be consistent. We must be reliable. We must be reliable in the ministry and we must be loyal to the Lord's work. And I ask you, are you steadfast? Are you steadfast 
in the preaching of the gospel. And not just the defense of the truth of the gospel, but preaching it. Do you preach the gospel? And then, are you steadfast in ministry as, as well? Are you reliable in the work of the Lord? Are you loyal to the Lord? But then we come to the next word, the next command, be steadfast, unmovable. And the idea of steadfast and unmovable are, are, are very similar here. And Paul is driving home this point that we are to be fixed. We are to be steady. We are to be solid. In the year A.D. 79, Mount Vesuvius began to erupt. And the eruption of that mountain lasted for uh, nearly two days. And it ended up being one of the most devastating natural, uh, natural disasters in Europe's history. And the eruption resulted in many cities being buried in, in, in something like 20 meters of, of, of ash and rock. And most notably, the city Pompeii was buried under the, 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 the lava and the rock of this, uh, this, this volcano. And in the last few hundred years, archaeologists have begun to dig up the remains of that great city, Pompeii. And what they have discovered is that people were literally frozen in place as, as certain parts of that eruption happened in a rather rapid pace. And so people were found in their cellars, people were found in their roofs, literally frozen in place, although frozen is probably not the right word to use there. But among the people that were, were, were frozen, so to speak, uh, in, in place uh, by that rock, uh, there were soldiers on guard outside the city at the gate, and they had a spear in, their, spear in their hand, and they were literally frozen in their position on guard because they were not relieved of their duty. They were not told they could leave their command. And it is just like those soldiers that were frozen in place, that as they saw certain death coming upon them, they remained fixed, they remained solid, they remained in their post that their commander, commander had given them. And you and I have been given a command by our commander-in-chief. And we are, not to, we are not to flee our post. We are not to desert our mission. We are to stand on guard. We are to stay in our post until He comes and, and, and He raptures us away. And the command here is to do not be moved away from the will of God. Do not be moved away from the Word of God. Do not be moved away from the work of God. And so let me ask you a question. What would it take to move you? Or I should say, what has it taken to move you? What will it take to move you? How much discouragement? How much disappointment? What kind of temptations would it take to move you? Or are you truly, as Paul says here, unmovable? Unmovable, fixed, solid, sturdy in your post, waiting for the day that your commander returns? We move on to the next and final statement, or the command, I should say, given to us. And that is that we are to always abounding in the work of the Lord. We are to always abound in the work of the Lord. What is it to be steadfast and to be unmovable? It is to be abounding in the work of the Lord. And the idea of abounding is to go beyond the expectation or comparison. You think of Romans chapter 5, which says, Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The weight of God's grace in my life has exceeded the weight of my sin in my own life. You consider the wonderful verse in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly 
above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. We find there the Lord can exceed our expectations that we place upon Him. And even in our chapter here, verse number 10, I believe it is, we find Paul says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. And so even in comparison to to the other apostles, Paul labored more abundantly. He exceeded what the other apostles, apostles did. And to abound in the work of the Lord is not merely to do enough. It is, not, it is not merely to pass by with what is expected. It is to do above and beyond the call of duty. It is to go beyond the call of duty. It is to do what is expected, what is asked. As Romans 12.1, what is our reasonable service? But it is to go above and beyond that. Putting all on the life for Jesus Christ. I ask you, are you abounding in the work of the Lord? And when I think about those that abound in God's work, you know, there, there are people in this church, and thanks be to God for this, that, that if you ask them to do anything, they will do it. And they will not show you on their face how inconvenient you have just put, how much inconvenience you have put in them. They will do it, and they will do it with a smile. And that is, that is wonderful. There, there are people here that, that can do things in a, in a, they can put their heart into it and they can do it well. Praise the Lord for people like that. But then there are other people. And even in this church, I, I sadly must say, there are other people who it seems like they work two eight-hour two, two eight shifts six, six days a week. They have no time for the work of the Lord. They have no time to do anything for, for, for the church or for the ministry or for, for God's work. And if that's you, that, that is to your shame. You are in clear disobedience of God's Word. You're not always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I ask you, are you abounding in the work of the Lord? I wonder if you could find some way to increase your investment in God's work. And could you honestly say today that you are going above and beyond that which, you, that which is expected of you by your Lord? You notice the word there, not just abounding in the work of the Lord, but always abounding in the work of the Lord. There is no retirement from the work of the Lord. There is no neutral or reverse to God's work. Now, now let me be clear. I'm not saying that a pastor or missionary or evangelist can, 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 can retire. I'll use that word in the specific sense that we think, think of it. Uh, retire from the ministry in a full-time capacity. Certainly, I'm not saying that, that, that everyone that does that is out of the will of the Lord. But there is never an end to the work of the Lord, to the mission, the ministry that God has called us to. And I'm not just talking about ministry. I'm talking about you, you as well. Even if you're not in full-time ministry, you are, you are enlisted in the work of the Lord. You are called to be a part of, uh, of, of, of the army of God. And so, so, so we are to always abound, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. But then we see this last statement, and I'll close with this. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This truth is to be at the forefront of your mind. In fact, this is the key to being fixed, stable, and unmovable. Do you know how easy it is to spend your life doing things that are vain? 
You know how easy it is to wake up one day and you're 70 and you haven't done anything for the Lord? And I wonder, is this at the forefront of your mind? Are you, are you laboring in vain? Or are you spending your life doing something that is not in vain in the Lord? And, and let me be clear here. I'm not saying that a person that works a secular job that has no uh, Christian involve, involvement in it uh, is, 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 is spending their life in, an, in, in a vain existence. That's certainly not the case. Uh, the testimony that one can have in that environment is of immense value to the Lord. And, and, and furthermore, give, giving sacrificially uh, to the Lord and to the work of the Lord can, can provide immense value as well. But it can be very easy to get wrapped up in climbing the corporate ladder. It can be very easy to get wrapped up with keeping up with the Joneses. It can be very easy to get wrapped up in running that rat race that will keep you running until the day that you die. It is so easy to spend your life accumulating things and accumulating pleasures and accumulating comforts that one day you wake up and you realize you have wasted your life. And the challenge tonight is that we put at the forefront of our mind the future of our resurrection. The fact that Christ could come at any moment. And if you keep that at the forefront of your mind, you will not live a vain existence. You will do that which is not vain, and that you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so I ask you, is this, is it the, is, is it, is this excuse me, at the forefront of your mind? You know, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, and we get to see the accumulation of our work for the Lord, whether it's wood, hay, and stubble, or whether it's precious stones for the Lord, I wonder how many people are going to regret the amount of work that they've done for the Lord. I, I know there are going to be some people that regret how little they've done for the Lord. But I wonder, I wonder if there's going to be anybody there that regrets having done too much for the Lord. If they regret having not lived more for themselves. If they regret not buying that one pleasure, that one comfort. If they regret giving so much to missions. If they regret spending so much time in the work of the Lord. You and I know the answer to that question. When we get to the judgment seat of Christ, there is not going to be one person that regrets having done too much for the Lord. Not one. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And no matter, how, no matter what you contribute to the Lord, no matter how small or insignificant it may seem, God sees it and He uses it and He rewards it. Let's pray. Father... Thank you for this wonderful chapter and, and, and the, the, the verse that we chose for our text this evening. And I pray that you'd help us to leave here tonight having on the forefront of our minds for the rest of our being the coming of, of our Lord and the future resurrection of our bodies. Lord, help us to be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to...